You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Hey, good afternoon, um, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Christina Floria, who is an assistant professor at Cornell University. Professor Floria received her MA and PhD at Princeton and did her undergraduate work at Williams College. After completing her PhD, but before arriving in Ithaca, she was twice an Academy Scholars Postdoctoral Fellow at Harvard University, and she also held a tenure-track position at the University of Albany at the State University of New York. Professor Flory is broadly interested in a vast array of important subjects for the field of East European history and more broadly European history. They include modern Europe with a focus on the Soviet Union and East Central Europe, the history of empires, borderlands and frontiers, and the cultural, urban and migration history. And I think what is most impressive about Professor Floria's work is how she brings all of these different subjects together. She's published several articles, including one earlier this year in the prestigious British journal Past and Present. And that one was entitled Frontiers of Civilization in the Age of Mass Migration from Eastern Europe to the Americas. Again, demonstrating the breadth of her interests and questions, she's currently finishing off her book manuscripts. And this is her first book. It's under review, and it is titled Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. Her book will tell the story of the small East European borderland of Bukovina. And if you don't know about Bukovina, you're going to find out a lot about it over the next hour or so. Um, and she looks at it over the course of two centuries as it shifted from the Austrian Empire to Russia, Romania, the Soviet Union, and then independent Ukraine. The book reflects on the power of place through the story of this small and distant territory, and it reflects her approach to global history, revealing how large global transformations developed at a local level, how they were experienced by state officials and locals on the ground, and also how large processes such as imperial competition, modernization, and the rise of ideologies developed local roots as well. This is going to be a field-defining book. I'm really looking forward to it coming out. As we'll find out today, um, as we'll find out in, in the talk today, Bukovina is currently split between Ukraine and Romania. And with the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, her work has taken on a new importance. Since February, Professor Floria has written for public audiences, including in Time magazine, CNN Opinion and Foreign Affairs, and she has a forthcoming piece in the New York Review of Books with the title, Ukrainian Identity Against the Backdrop of Centuries of Russian-Ukrainian Entanglements. So watch out for that one. Today, however, Professor Floria will be giving us a sneak preview of some of the arguments and materials from her forthcoming book. Her talk is titled, Crossroads of Empire, Culture and Statehood at the Eastern Frontiers of Europe. Please join me in warmly welcoming Professor Christina Floria to Madison. Thank you so much, Catherine, for this wonderful introduction. I barely got to recognize myself. <laughs> and thank you, Krika, for having me here. I'm so excited to be here. I've been just locked up in my own house for the past two years and a half. So this is wonderful to meet human beings again. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I would start today's talk uh, with this brief joke that I think is going to give you a very good uh, sense of this place that I'm trying to introduce you to and talk about. And the joke goes like this. 
This one man was sitting on a bench at a train station. And another man approaches him and says, Excuse me, sir, where are you from? And the man thinks a little bit and then says, Oh, I'm not sure. I haven't read the newspaper yet. <laughs> I think so this is very representative of what was happening here throughout basically two centuries that I've been uh, tracing, namely this change in sovereignties and regimes that often happen overnight. And you can see this happening once again now, unfortunately. So let me begin maybe with 1914, since I can't tell the whole story here. I'm just going to focus on a few snapshots. Um, August 1914, if you were to land in Chernovitz, which was then the capital of this province of Bukovina, you would find all these people perched up on the, you see the city hall over there in this uh, illustration, perched up on the tower, observing the Russian troops as they were approaching the city, actually through opera glasses and binoculars. The frontier was this close, right, that you could actually see them coming. It didn't take the Russians too long to enter the city, and before long, news came in of raping and pillaging uh, <clears throat> that they were carrying out in the countryside. The local Austrian administration had already fled, uh, leaving most of the population defenseless. Uh, people were scared out of their wits, and especially the Jewish community who had heard about uh, atrocities that the Russian troops were committing against Jewish populations in their path. Initially, and here you see the Cossack troops actually coming into the city. Initially, there was looting and destruction. And here's an image of the, um, basically this is a newspaper headquarters in Chernobyl that got, uh, basically the Russians just came in and just kind of tore everything to pieces. The Russian troops made their headquarters, for example, in the university building. They started destroying uh, science labs, breaking windows, just leaving a complete disaster behind them. Some officers took up residences uh, in the homes of officials who had fled or who were deported shortly afterwards. Some be behaved well, but for the most part, the Russians just left a trail of tears behind them. But then something really odd happened. The newspapers in Chernovitz began reporting that the Russian authorities were frantically cleaning the streets as locals were looking on, observing them and judging. As it turned out, the Russians had long-term designs on this region, and so their intention was not simply to punish the population and exploit the province's resources, but also to integrate them into the Russian Empire over the longer term. For to, in order to do that, they had to project some kind of legitimacy, no matter how tenuous. And so as it transpired, appearing cultured or civilized turned out to be key to that process of establishing authority in this newly conquered territory, especially in a place like Bukovina, where people really made no secret of the prejudices they had against the Russians, whom they basically regarded as Asiatic barbarians. But the Russian authorities didn't really manage to hold on to this place for too long, just a couple of months, actually. Then they were pushed back by the central powers again. And during the following years, Bukovina witnessed this constant coming and going of troops as the front lines shifted back and forth, I think around four times. And with each return, the authorities would reclaim the province and then begin trying to undo what the previous administration had done. Now, fast forward a few, a few years later to 1918, when Austria is gone, its armies had disintegrated after the Central Powers signed an armistice, armistice with the Allies, 
Bukovina's last governor was put on a train to Vienna and just <laughs> sent back, while representatives of the uh, province's two most numerous nationalities, who were uh, Romanians and Ukrainians, or Ruthenians as they're called at the time, began disputing the province uh, and making parallel claims basically to it. The Romanian National Council, this body that just assembled kind of overnight uh, within the province, began invoking the danger of Bolshevik unrest penetrating into Bukovina, where Ukrainian troops had already begun seizing administrative buildings. Um, and so what they did is they called upon the Romanian government, so government of Romanian nation state with which Bukovina shared a border, to send in their troops to help restore order. With these Romanian divisions already in town, the council then assembled a general congress in which they, as well as a few representatives of Poles, uh, Polish and German communities in the province, voted to have Bukovina incorporated unconditionally and for good into Romania. And this marked the beginning of over two decades of Romanian rule uh, over Bukovina. Romania's claims were recognized internationally at the Paris Peace Conference um, for many reasons, which I can elaborate on later. <clears throat> But what is really interesting is that eventually, after denouncing Austrian rule as completely artificial and illegitimate, the Romanian authorities began dismantling monuments that they found that reminded lo the local population a little too much of the previous regime, and then also took some steps to leave their own imprint on the landscape to make Bukovina look and feel Romanian, part of this young, vibrant nation state, rather than just a relic of an old empire. One of the things that they did is they replaced a monument to Austria that was situated right in the center of the city, in the central square, with a new statue that uh, was supposed to embody or to celebrate unification with Romania and to highlight Bukovina's old historic links with Romanian Moldova through none other than the figure of an ox. You see over here, right? People began, it became a kind of a key point in the city. People are taking pictures with it. Uh, this ox you can see here was shown trampling the Austrian eagle underfoot. <laughs> the monument was supposed to celebrate right, the triumph of the nation state over the defunct empire, but actually that was not how many locals saw it. Among them, in fact, the statue caused a good deal of hilarity, uh, became an object of derision and mockery. Uh, a group of local youth, for example, before long were caught by the police while tying a bag of hay around the ox's head, which was essentially a comment on Romania's inability to feed its own people. Uh, and here you, if, I don't know if there are any Romanian speakers, but if you were, you would probably be laughing. <laughs> this phrase over here is something that they inscribed on the monument, Romania meaning greater Romania has no polenta or a comment on the poor economic conditions, polenta being the traditional dish. Um, so these declining conditions of living, the poor economic situation, all of these things kind of uh, became part of the commentary on, on the, the new urban landscape that the Romanians were trying to create here. Now, if you step back and look at these two different episodes, um, I think what they indicate is that states and regimes that laid claim on Bukovina and thought of themselves actually often as radically opposed to each other were profoundly shaped by each other's either direct or indirect presence in the province. 
the borderland province that they basically took turns in ruling ended up facilitating mutual influences between these regimes. Some of them were locked in combat, for example, Austria and the Russian Empire in the first example. Others were indirect adversaries, for example, the defunct Austrian Empire and the newly enlarged Romanian nation state that was built on the wreckage of this imperial order. Either way, what different states did in Bukovina and how they related to one another and to the population they governed was profoundly shaped by their proximity towards each other, both in space and in time. Uh, the first case illustrates how physical proximity led to imitation and competition. Bukovina had been even out before that long a place of contact and mutual observation between Austria and Russia. And this feature of life in the province became even more pronounced during World War I. And the second case shows how regimes in Bukovina, much as they like to think of themselves as having broken completely with the past, had to deal with each other's legacies, which also became a vehicle for mutual influences. They often ended up building on changes that they inherited from previous regimes and enacting transformations with materials that they recycled. And they also inherited a population that brought its experiences under those previous regimes with them and began making comparisons between successive regimes and consequently shaping uh, with the expectations that they had of what authority should look like, how states should behave, what the new government authorities did in the province. Local encounters and experiences at the level of villages and of cities in Bukovina and individual communities had international and global reverberations. They shaped how empires and states that came together in this region thought of themselves in relation to each other and how they interacted not only on a regional but also on a continental level. Which is what explains, I think, why Bukovina, whose remoteness and backwardness often made it into an object of mockery and disdain, found itself repeatedly at an epicenter of transformations that would really come to define Europe in the modern age. Now, my book, such as it is, <laughs> you know, tells the story of this little province as a place of mutual observation, competition, emulation, and conflict between different states and their governments mediated by a population that changed hands frequently and that experienced repeated regime changes and sovereignty, often overnight. And what I try to do is present Bukovina and more generally the East European borderlands as a place of unexpected entanglements that can help us better understand ultimately how the modern state evolved, how modern sovereignty developed over the course of the last two centuries. The mutual influence of the different regimes that set foot in Bukovina is best illustrated, I think, among other things, by their recurring preoccupation with culture as an instrument for total transformation. And this is what I want to focus on specifically here. This is an ambition that I found all of them shared. So successive regimes that otherwise completely rejected each other's ideological premises came to converge on this assumption that culture measured in terms of literacy and urbanization was you know, the definite path to modernity and prosperity. So all of them came to promise that they would deliver through culture this backward, uncivilized place, as they labeled it, into uh, a modern, uh, right, civilized region. Um, so before I get into that, I just wanted uh, to acquaint you a little bit with the region and how uh, it, it ended up being so interesting, in my opinion. 
here's a bad map, but <laughs> you can sort of see. Uh, this over here is Bukovina, and this is a map of Austria-Hungary. So you can see, this is also part of Austria-Hungary, Galicia, and you can see that it's located at the easternmost uh, frontier of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, before it was incorporated into Austria, so in the eight, which happened in the 18th century, Bukovina was located at the northern, northernmost tip of this region. That was a principality of Moldova. And this was a state that was wedged between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire. Um, now, as you might know, there were a series of wars between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire leading all like into the mid-18th century. And so in one of these, the Ottoman Empire was defeated uh, by Russia. And since Austria had agreed to serve as a mediator between them, it was allowed to incorporate this small piece of territory that was actually just under Ottoman suzerainty, so it was not directly part of the Ottoman Empire. Before this point, Bukovina had Bukovina did not exist as such, right? It was just this territory. But it was constantly raided by one set of troops or another. It was part of a region that had been volatile even you know, before this point because it was situated at the edge of multiple empires. And largely as a result of this instability, the area remained quite underdeveloped economically and under, underpopulated as well. At the time that Austria incorporated it, uh, the area, oh, there's a mistake there. The area was uh, 10,442 square kilometers, and it counted 70,000 residents at the most. The vast majority of them speakers of Moldavian or Ukrainian. At first, the region was placed under military administration, and then in 1786, it was incorporated into this larger province of Galicia. Um, it gained autonomy briefly in 1848 and then again in 1860. And so after that point, it was represented on the map as a separate, uh, it was called the Duchy of Bukovina, a separate province. It remained under Austrian rule until 1918, as I mentioned before, um, witnessing basically a rise of nationalist movements like a little bit later actually than elsewhere in the empire by 1890s and 1900s. Uh, both as a result of policies that uh, the Austrian Empire implemented and because of their efforts to repopulate the province with new elements, and as a result of frequent uh, regime changes, Bukovina came to have a really diverse population. The two largest groups, as I mentioned, were Romanians and Ruthenians, or rather Romanian speakers and Ruthenian speakers, and here you see a breakdown according to the Austrian census of 1910. Um, the vast majority of the population like Ruthenian Romanian speakers, most of them concentrated in the countryside. Germans, also primarily rural, 4% uh, Poles. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> my statistics forgot to include the Jews who are actually a really important part of the population. And I have a picture here, right? There, there were both very traditional uh, Jewish communities in the countryside and then increasingly after the 1840s basically, assimilated German-speaking Jews who had moved into Chernovitz and actually uh, formed over one-third of the city's population uh, by the turn of the century. And here you have, I love this po uh, postcard basically, illustration of the ways in which the rural and the urban 
uh, even as late as 1910 or the 1900s, the boundaries between village and city were not always very clearly drawn. And here you have Romanian and Bohemian peasants who often came from the countryside with produce like chickens and cucumbers and God knows what, right? And, and they would just sell it here in the marketplace right in the city center. There, there are many uh, local authors who really just uh, you know, go to town with descriptions of the smells and <laughs> everything that people from the countryside brought with them. Um, so these 150 years or so under Austrian rule were the longest period of stability, essentially, in Bukovina. Um, for once, the region, at least until 1914, no longer found itself directly in the path of war. This changed in August 1914, um, when you know war for most other people was still a distant reality. For residents of Bukovina, you know they found themselves once again in the front seat of this new uh, conflagration for which they weren't really prepared. The province in 1918, as I alluded to, came very close to being partitioned between Romania and Ukraine. But the international conjuncture and the situation on the ground somehow aligned um, and favored the Romanian cause. And so the entire territory ended up becoming part of the Romanian nation state. And during the next two decades, the province was subjected to a series of nationalization uh, measures with the ultimate goal being to incorporate it, uh, to tie it firmly into the structures of the Romanian state, even though, as the Romanian officials discovered, this was way uh, easier said than done, because the legacies of more than a century and a half of imperial rule proved really hard to remove. They couldn't really simply be peeled back, as nationalists had assumed. And so out of a lot of these frustrations uh, of the Romanian administration and Romanian population who expected that immediately with the onset of national rule, things would improve overnight in Bukovina. Well, because their expectations right, were disappointed and they felt increasingly frustrated, we see them turning in the interwar period increasingly towards illiberalism, which is a different story that I'm not going to get into here, but just wanted to mention it. And now, in 1940, as a result of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, Bukovina was partitioned. Now, actually along very much the same lines as it might have been in 1918. The northern half came under Soviet rule, and the southern half remained a part of Romania. Uh, the Soviets incorporated into Soviet Ukraine. Uh, and they justified this act of annexation uh, in terms of restoring the integrity of the Ukrainian nation state by attaching to it the last missing piece of Ukraine, as they said. And at this moment, they also set into motion a series of population shifts that led to the de definitive transformation in the province's ethnic and demographic structure. And here you have a, a picture of the first waves of deportations that they set into motion. Um, in 1941, the Romanians returned <laughs> to the north together with their German allies, and they reoccupied the, the northern half of the province. Funnily enough, they built essentially on the changes that the Soviets had implemented, even though they were radically anti-Soviet, by launching a new wave of deportations, this time of the Jewish population. And by 1944, when the Soviets returned to northern Bukovina again, right, and reincorporated this territory, 
the province had undergone extraordinary transformations. And this time, the Soviets would actually hold on to it for good, or at least until 1991. And here, I want to show you these two pictures. This is essentially 19, I think it was from 1942, when the Romanians, this was the building of the Romanian Cultural Center uh, in the city, now bears the swastika, right? And it has headquarters of the SS also in it. And there, the deportations that had begun in 1940. So these years were years of purges first purging the place of Jews, then purging of communists, purging of bourgeoisie, a lot of purges, <laughs> essentially. Um, so what I attempt to do in this book is basically tell the story of these state officials, urban elites, and then the village people who lived in this uh, rather peripheral place, as they thought about it, that actually turned out to be situated at the epicenter of some of the largest transformations uh, on the continent in the 19th and 20th centuries. And what I would like to uh, emphasize is how profoundly these individuals who made up local society engaged with, contested, and challenged ideas handed down from the centers of power and how they facilitated these mutual influences between regimes through comparisons they made and the competition that they stimulated between different state administrations. Um, right. And so overall, I guess I'm looking at this province as a miniature uh, picture of larger processes of exchange, emulation, and competition between the great powers. Okay, and so now before I get into the um, actual meat of the presentation to talk more about the cultural angle, I just want to tell you a little bit about where and when I did the research for this trip because it's quite, uh, it was quite an adventure. So this is basically a book on the basis of my dissertation research, which I did in 2014, 2015. And as things have been, it's by now actually a predictable pattern. Wherever I go, revolutions follow uh, <laughs> shortly. <laughs> I basically came to Ukraine in September, and already by November, there were cobblestones being thrown around. And the Maidan protest essentially started, and I just couldn't believe it. I was there at the time. And as you can see here, actually getting to this place is harder than ever before. I went there by taking this old Soviet train that's still working between <laughs> Sofia and Moscow. I boarded in Bucharest, and I think it was 17 hours later probably that I finally got off. But not before stopping at the border between Ukraine and Romania where the train is lifted up and then they change the wheels because the tracks are still totally so it's really like going to a different world and you see here I was suspended for four hours and somebody came and took my passport and I had no idea what the am I gonna get it back or not and so finally I arrived there only to discover eh, the archive you know I had heard uh, this is something a legacy of a Soviet period they really like to convert former religious buildings into government institutions or cinemas and so on. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they did is they took an old Jesuit uh, church and then turned it into state archive. But because there were no bathrooms in there, which I mean, they managed to live without them for several <laughs> decades, but they decided uh, shortly actually before I arrived to move the archive into this building that you see here, which used to be a Soviet pharmaceutical warehouse. 
And if you were to look, you can't tell from this picture. First of all, there is no concrete or there is no asphalt around here. And you have to go with boots. I mean, it's really rural. And then when you go inside, you notice that the floors and the walls are literally bent under the weight of the past, so to speak. There are all these documents, right? They're held in there that you can see, like, everything is, there's just piles and piles, and the building is in very poor shape. And just the fact that whatever I managed to grab, I can't even tell you what uh, kinds of things you have to resort to to get them. So if I include too many details, it's as a result of this, so I, I can be forgiven, hopefully. But so this is where I did the bulk of the research for this book. And then, funnily enough, I mean, I had to kind of scatter myself to the four winds, just like the population <laughs> of this place, because it turns out, right, each administration if they had the time, right? Before leaving, they usually took documents with them. And so you find traces of this little place all over the world. I ended up going to Israel and to Germany and to Romania and to Ukraine in several places. And there are even things in the United States. And so the process of putting it back together involves kind of uh, basically bringing back in one, into one place these stories that got really scattered. So that's, that was part of the challenge. Actually, most of the challenge, really. Um, and here's just like a brief preview that I wanted to give you just to get a sense about what I, how I'm envisioning the book right now is um, a sort of, you know, there's a bit of a comparative dimension to it as well. That what I'm trying to look at is how these different kinds of state administrations that came in there, you know, all of them had this project of transforming the province, how they went about it. And the reason why I have this long timeline is precisely because I wanted to see how, uh, essentially, I see the same people popping up right in this chapter and that chapter, where they shouldn't be there because they did something terrible right in the previous chapter, but now they're on the opposite side. And so that's the kind of perspective you get if you stay in one place over the long term. And this is a view of the city center from when I was there. OK, so now more in detail. <clears throat> on this culture aspect that I mentioned to you. Um, I'm basically looking at the ways in which culture, culture uh, was used both, both as a means of uh, uh, legitimation and also a recipe for government. How this functioned in Bukovina and how became, it became a point of convergence between the different regimes that ruled this province over the course of its almost, well, not almost, a little bit more than two centuries of existence. And the idea was first articulated by the Habsburg administration, who governed Bukovina, as I mentioned, for a while under the military administration and then part of a civilian administration in, uh, as a part of Galicia. Uh, so during this century and a half of Habsburg rule, Bukovina experienced both enlightened absolutist rule and then a liberal constitutionalist regime that beginning in the 1890s was increasingly in retreat challenged by nationalism. And it was under the liberals that this idea developed that the empire had a civilizing mission to fulfill in the East, <laughs> one that it could uh, showcase and that it could fulfill best of all in this province, which they imagined as a kind of blank slate, Bukovina. Um, so this cultural mission in the East provided them with an important source of legitimacy 
and also a source of identity, actually, at a juncture where these were badly needed because Austria had just lost the war with Prussia. It no longer played a dominant role in Central Europe and in Germany. It basically decided, or liberals decided, to turn east. Now, by the 1870s, liberals in Vienna were already on retreat. On the retreat, they had growing doubts about the viability of this so-called cultural mission, because the political scene in the capital and in the western borderlands was increasingly dominated, actually, by nationalist conflict. But in Bukovina, where there were such low literacy levels, commitment to nationalism was also low. <laughs> and so while the trend elsewhere in the empire was towards further fragmentation along national and ethnic lines, to give an example, a university in Lemberg in neighboring, neighboring Galicia split or it went over to instruction in Polish. In Prague, univer the university split into separate Czech and German language section. Everywhere there was a pushback against German language instruction. So at this point, a group of notables from Bukovina show up right in Vienna and present the emperor with a petition in which they request to open a German language university <laughs> in the provincial capital right, of Chernowitz. And the mastermind behind the petition was this man that you see here, Konstantin Tomaschuk, who, as you can tell from the name, he was half Ruthenian, half Romanian, so not German. And he insisted that, and here I'm quoting him, Bukovina's non-German sons also strive for a German university because German education has universal significance. Also, he insisted that um, a university with German language instruction would be a spiritual lighthouse in the midst of these multilingual peoples, giving them all the same light. <laughs> now, notables like Thomas Schuch, uh, were very eager to reinforce or to consolidate Bukovina's uh, pretty recently won provincial autonomy, and this was a way of doing it. This was an objective that Bukovinian elites and above all Romanian speakers had pursued for a very long time. But the way that he did this is he cast uh, his demands in this liberal language of culture. He reinforced this, demanding greater involvement essentially on the part of the imperial state in the province and more resources that should be devoted to, as he put it, the consolidation of Austrian state unity. So liberals like him in Bukovina continued positing that culture, or rather culture as they refer to it, was not only the key to prosperity, right, to developing the province, uh, to bridging the seemingly unsurpassable distance between Bukovina and the center, uh, but also the key to keeping the empire together to turning the extraordinary ethnic diversity, which by the way, Bukovina was actually the most ethnically diverse in the empire at that point, turning this into a source of strength rather than a liability. And so in truth, it seems that culture became, uh, or rather that the central authorities, uh, by the way, just to give it away, they approved the petition. And so it seems though that their motives for doing that were quite different, namely, they believed basically that this cultural project could be carried out with minimal investment uh, on the part of the university because since Bukovina was so far away from every other place in the empire, they figured, well, it doesn't really have to compete with the other universities. They also calculated that um, you know, they did have some buildings already like a gymnasium as they called it, like a type of high school and some theological seminary, and they could just reuse those things or patch them together. And in fact, you know, the university, 
that did not yet really have a building or anything, it sort of just existed in theory, was named uh, Francisco Josefina after the Emperor Franz Josef, who sadly had to write a letter in 1875 apologizing that he couldn't attend the inauguration for budgetary reasons. <laughs> and so the inauguration was really celebrated with much pomp and circumstance, but in reality, as I said, the university didn't really have a building. It did not have storage space for books or equipment. Um, things just, you know, uh, textbooks remained exposed to the elements. Students and professors struggled with a permanent lack of water and gaslight. They read standing and they used cardboards as desks for a while. Well, by the late 19th century, they finally got a building, right? So things worked, but they took a very long time. The greatest challenge or problem with this reliance on culture as a kind of cure-all for Bukovina's afflictions was that while it did provide Bukovina's, as Tomaschuk kind of anticipated, with some common ground, this shared Bildung, it turned out that it did not actually successfully bridge all differences, but gave rise actually to a new intelligentsia class, new uh, intellectual elites, who could speak this language of imperial culture perfectly, but who actually began turning the language against itself or used it to interrogate essentially what the empire was doing here. And these individuals formed the core of new nationalist movements that finally began to emerge here around the 1890s, that developed more slowly than elsewhere in the monarchy, but then became increasingly difficult to ignore. And so, the funny and uh, kind of unexpected thing is that these nationalists actually ended up reinforcing this idea that culture was the key to, or the definitive marker of success and the favorite instrument of transformation in Bukovina. They complained very loudly about how the imperial administration favored one group or another, but they essentially competed for the same kinds of cultural assets that the empire had established or had, had uh, kind of marked as a measure of prestige or a marker of distinction. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, the Romanian administration that came in after 1918 also began reinforcing this idea. They, uh, at least initially, completely rejected or dismissed Austrian, uh, Austria's pretensions of civilizational superiority. And here I want to give you the example of Nikolai Yorga, who was the key um, uh, figure within the Romanian irredentist movement and the historian, <laughs> who basically thought Austria was pathetic. Of course, it disintegrated. <laughs> and this is my favorite quote. He says, Austria cannot be regretted any more than Don Quixote's Rocinanda, who passed away sticking out his long tongue by the side of the road. And so for him, right, because Austria was so artificial, uh, it was automatically unsustainable. But at the same time, he and other people in the administration couldn't help but notice that the population in Bukovina was viewing them and judging them based on their ability to conform to behave patterns of behavior that had been established under Austrian rule and often found them wanting. Whether or not their authority was recognized as legitimate seemed to be dependent on whether they could deliver on promises or measure up to expectations that locals had developed under the previous regime. And so one of the accusations that locals repeatedly leveled on the new authorities was that they were backward, uncultured, or just culturally inferior to them, which was improper. How could they pretend to rule us? 
They commented frequently on the fact that Romanian soldiers entered, who entered the province wore tattered clothing and bad shoes. Um, there were denunciations flowing into the police authorities about neighbors who said that, quote, Romanians are thieves and that back in the days of Franz Josef, everything was better. Other officials reported that Romanians, quote, believe themselves to be still in former Austria, in which time everything Romanian was mocked, and these thousands of people even today are propagating their anti-Romanian ideas and mocking any good Romanian or Romanian institutions through insults and death threats. And so both because of these expectations and for other reasons, including a dire lack of resources, the Romanian regime also found itself upholding culture as a measure of worth and success and privileging cultural policy as a means of overcoming the rift between the recently incorporated province and the rest of the nation state. And so even as they were singing the praises of the countryside as a repository of national feeling, these authorities also set their sights on the same symbols of cultural power uh, that had been set up under imperial rule. They wanted to essentially take these over to claim them for the Romanians. And one of these, the most important one of them actually, was the city theater that you see here. It was frequently uh, shown in these postcards. And here in front, this is an interesting fact. Uh, this is here a monument to Friedrich Schiller. So that actually put there by the Jewish community who are completely enamored with Schiller in the German language. And with every administration, this statue would change. Friedrich Schiller actually ended up getting dumped into the backyard of the German National House in 1918 and was replaced with the Romanian poet Mihai Minescu, who in turn was dumped in 1940 and replaced with the Ukrainian poet Olga Kobylanska, <laughs> who is still there now. I'll show you a picture of that. <clears throat> so, um, where was I? Right, so the city theater basically became a kind of object of desire for this new administration. And also one of frustration because uh, German language plays continued to be performed here well into the 1930s. Um, even though the, uh, the uh, theater right, was now renamed, right, there was a statue of a Romanian poet and yet everybody keeps on speaking German. And so gradually, uh, it, it turned out that the countryside remained underfunded, largely ignored actually by the state, while the city, now renamed Chernaut, right, in Romanian, and its cultural institutions became a kind of symbol of the new regime's, uh, well, you know, both an object of desire and the symbol of the new regime's impotence to uh, do away with these legacies of Bukovina's imperial past. And things got so bad that by November 1932, Actually, the city theater came under assault. Like, if you can imagine, a group of radical nationalist Romanian students broke into the city theater to interrupt a performance staged by a Jewish director. And as the police report noted, all the time they occupied the theater, the students made a scandal, rang some bells they pulled out of the theater's coat rack, shouting that the bells were being rung for the eternal remembrance of Mishu Fortino, who was the Jewish director. They broke a hydrant trying to hose down the police force, broke into, into the buffet with chocolate and candy, dividing the chocolate amongst themselves. I mean, if that is not a symbol of impotence, I don't know what is. Um, so ever since the early 1920s, the Romanian administration had also been taking measures to reverse the trend 
whereby non-Romanian students and especially Jewish ones uh, took up the majority of seats at the university and in, uh, also in the high schools. And they did this through language measures, among other things, which were meant to make it more difficult for non-native Romanian speakers to go to school or to hold positions of influence uh, in the province. And in 1926, actually, it came to violence when uh, two-thirds of the non-Romanian candidates to a baccalaureate exam, which is like at the end of high school, uh, were failed. 80% uh, of the Jewish candidates also failed, which led to mass protests that culminated actually in the assassination of a Jewish student by a nationalist Romanian who was subsequently pardoned for his deed. So, this Romanian administration I've been telling you about was still struggling to incorporate the province in 1940 when the Soviets, after concluding this non-aggression treaty with Germany, gave the Romanian government an ultimatum, basically telling them that they had to leave the province up to the river Prut, so the northern half, within 48 hours. And then, actually, even before <laughs> those 48 hours were over, they marched into northern Bukovina and annexed the northern half. Um, the Soviets, when they came in, had their disposal, because now their occupation was taking place against the backdrop of war, some instruments of transformation that no previous regime had had in Bukovina, namely mass deportations, arrests, things of that nature that the Romanians would only have dreamed of, but they hadn't really implemented before. Um, equipped with these instruments, the Soviet authorities now again promised to make Bukovina prosperous and modern, to enfranchise its population, to educate them, to make culture accessible and democratic. They basically promised to deliver a new model of modernity and civilization that would avoid the pitfalls of those previous modernization campaigns carried out by, as they called it, capitalist bourgeois administrations that had failed. So since they were a revolutionary regime, the Soviets really liked to emphasize the rupture between themselves and the past. But just like the administrations before them, they really couldn't help but absorb into their structures elements of previous regimes that they encountered in Bukovina. For example, one very obvious thing they inherited was the population, right? The local population that had never experienced Soviet rule and whose understanding of politics and how state and citizens interacted was shaped by previous experiences under those capitalist regimes. Moreover, these were also people who were strongly prejudiced towards the Soviets, who did not forget or forgive when they saw officers stealing bottles of perfume and drinking them as vodka, as they recorded, or officers' wives donning nightgowns and thinking they were evening attire, right? All of which they branded as acts of barbarism. Um, so what we see consequently is that even while they, they were trying very hard to differentiate themselves from previous regimes, the Soviets started increasingly playing this game of sovereignty and authority according to rules that had been established long before their arrival. They ended up speaking about a cultural front, seeing themselves as bearers of culture to a benighted population. The idea of cultural revolution as an instrument of governance became critical for them, just as much as the collectivization and industrialization processes which they also launched. They kept a really close eye on literacy levels and school attendance and boasted that since their arrival, uh, quote, public interest in newspapers, journals, and books has grown beyond belief. And then they uh, also avowed that their goal was to eliminate or 
their favorite word, liquidate, illiteracy as soon as possible, right, by the end of 1940. And here you have a, 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 a map, basically, of the northern half uh, as it is now, which more or less corresponds, basically, with the northern half. Like This is the southern one that remained under um, Romanian rule, and the northern one was annexed by the Soviets. And that's the city theater under the Soviets with a new icon in front, this time a Ukrainian poet. So now, this Soviet <laughs> culturedness, interesting enough, was to be communicated in Ukrainian. This was the new official language the Soviets insisted that should be used by all state institutions. The Ukrainian population in northern Bukovina were also the main target of the Soviet regime's literacy campaign. That was they were envisioned basically as the province's most nationally and economically oppressed group, a kind of surrogate proletariat, since there was no real proletariat. Now, denouncing the Romanian regime before them for having completely liquidated Ukrainian schools, the Soviet authorities began advertising, you know, the fact that they were opening Ukrainian schools, that they were increasing literacy in the Ukrainian countryside. Then they made Ukrainian compulsory at the university. Uh, the idea was basically to make it easier for Ukrainians to get a higher education. But then it turns out that not many Ukrainians actually spoke Ukrainian or wrote it or really were fluent in the literary Ukrainian. So the Soviets had to teach the Ukrainians Ukrainian in Bukovina. They found themselves in this really weird position. And in the process, they also redefined what Ukrainian culture was all about. They made it compatible with the Soviet project. They took figures from the Ukrainian past, namely this poet who had been around since the 19th century, uh, was still there, was still alive, uh, had actually started her career writing in German and then eventually uh, was persuaded to go over to Ukrainian. Her name was Oyha Kobylianska. And she had been basically pushed underground under the Romanian administration because was unable to publish in Ukrainian. So now she's 77 years old and then the Soviets land in there. The next day, they already set up the newspaper, Radanska Bukovina, <laughs> there was already, they already have all the editorial stuff, everybody. Um, and they just knock on her door and then take pictures of themselves with Olha Kobylianska that appear on the front pages of Radanska Bukovina. And the newspaper reports that she's happy she lived to see this historic moment the Ukrainians' unification with their brothers of the same blood, and that she was living the best and brightest times of her life. Uh, now they called her the honored daughter of the Ukrainian people, and gradually began turning her into a symbol of the Soviet regime. They emphasized that even though she was a woman, she, or rather because she was a woman, she had been denied public education, but as they put it, um, she had, hold on, there's this, she had been, uh, oh, she had worked on herself, as they like to put it, using all the possibilities available to improve her cultural level. Um, and so in return for a few meager privileges, such as a state-issued pension, Kobolianska was now expected to endorse the Soviets during the first elections that they organized in 1940. Mm. Thankfully for her, she died just a year later, so she didn't get to uh, do much of this activity, propaganda propagandizing activity for much longer. So uh, the interesting thing here is that the Soviets essentially, while denouncing Ukrainian nationalism, actually going after Ukrainian nationalists in Bukovina and arresting and deporting them, 
ended up carrying out a greater degree of Ukrainization than the Ukrainian nationalists had ever uh, achieved, at least in 1940. So now to step back, I don't know how much time I have, but I'm gonna just step back now and just sort of draw some larger conclusions. Ultimately, I see this as a story about imperial legacies in this region, about how the dilemmas of empire, the instruments of governance, and those habits of mind that prevailed under empires never really went away from this region. Um, and the appeal of culture, I think, is one of those uh, aspects of imperial legacies that has been most enduring. The Austrian Empire's reliance on cultural policy, often as a substitute essentially for economic measures, failed to achieve those intended effects in the short term. Uh, all of their cultural projects fell short. They remained incomplete and inadequate. But the groundwork, intellectual and institutional, that they laid during that period cast a long shadow over subsequent uh, regimes that subsequently ruled Bukovina. They created an expectation that transformation by cultural means should be carried out by and through the state. And they're also invoked by local society to contest the state's legitimacy or authority over the territory. So in this region, generally, cultural projects were uh, often carried out incompletely and in this makeshift manner. And the resulting landscape is one of the things that I find most fascinating. It became a patchwork one in which you have fragments of different universes kind of jumbled together. Uh, contrasts that are juxtaposed in surprising fashion, which really translated for many people into a sense of being caught between different eras or different worlds. And I found this best illustrated, I mean, I could feel it even when I was there, where you see all these buildings where the paint is peeling off and then all these other languages pop up, they're just one layer of paint away. And so it's strange just uh, walking around with pieces of right Isikovich, who was probably deported to Transnistria, who used to be a painter uh, over here. I don't even remember. But there are many, many uh, buildings like this that kind of seem to belong to different epochs at the same time. And I think this back and forth also translated into a distaste for politics, uh, which became a sort of marker of regional identity in Bukovina. And this regional identity came to draw heavily on both a sense of marginality and mixed in with one of exceptionalism. Uh, I find Bukovina's claiming repeatedly they know better than everybody else what this or that state is about because they're on the margins and they see things better, right, or they see it differently. Um, and so, <coughs> um, often, Right? This, uh, this fear of marginality, or the sense of both marginality and uh, kind of exceptionalism, led these people to champion ideas that had been long abandoned by the center, and to agitate, for example, for greater state involvement, which is not necessarily something that I had expected. Um, mm -hmm. More broadly, what I'm hoping that to illuminate through this story is essentially the role of these small places that are seemingly marginal and remote, in the making and the transformation of these large political systems. And one thing that Bukovina sh shows is how a lot of these large processes that I've been talking about happen here in a compressed and accelerated form. Uh, so what we see over time, for example, is a rapid increase in states' belief in the possibility of bringing about total transformation. And also a phenomenal increase in their capacity to bring about changes over the short term, so immediate ones. 
Before World War I, if you compare that regime to what would happen later, the pace of change was very slow. But paradoxically, those very slow and seemingly invisible or ineffective changes that took place in that period left an overwhelming legacy that manifested it all itself in the cultural, the ethnic complexity of the region that proved really tricky for all pre, uh, 20th century regimes, essentially, to deal with. And more broadly, I'm trying to think about frontiers, essentially, and frontier region, regions, not necessarily as places where states universally come to die, but also where state institutions, ideas about statehood actually mean more than elsewhere where the presence or the absence of state authority can really have life or death consequences for people. And where the policies that state institutions adopt can make the difference between a life worth living and one that's total hell. And so in this sense, I think this book is trying to show how these peripheral territories in Europe uh, were in fact crucial to the evolution of modern state power its ambitions, its ideological motivations, and its consequences. And this was not only over the course of the decades that I'm studying here, but it continues to be so today. And here I wanted to show you, this is again from, I think it was a couple of years later that I visited, where you see Soviet monuments that now actually have come under assault, but they're still standing, monument to the Red Army, liberation. When you enter this city, there's a big Soviet tank that was still <laughs> celebrated. That's no longer happening. But side by side with that, you have these new phenomena like statues of the Emperor Franz Josef in the middle of a park, right, in Ukraine. And here you see poor Franz Josef, <laughs> you know, got sprayed with red paint. <laughs> because this confrontation between, actually the first month when I arrived, I found um, a lot of inscriptions on walls, Moskale go home, uh, already anti-Russian feeling. And this Russian-Ukrainian friction is also taking the shape of this battle of monuments where the Ukrainians are kind of hanging on to these symbols of Habsburg rule and turning them against these other monuments. So these ghosts of the past are still kind of fighting each other. Um, and I think essentially what all of this shows is that this space is still really at the epicenter of these massive transformations uh, of the international system currently. Uh, it's, it's a place that's still pushing us essentially to redefine what we mean about by Europe, what we mean by democracy, how we envision Europe's borders, and how far we're willing to go to defend it. And this is a picture of how when I moved to Kiev, essentially this is what was happening there. A lot of people from the provinces were going there. In fact, I was actually with a couple of them. And here, I think I'm going to end because I'm running out of time. But thank you so much for listening to this. Thank you for your time.